Are you ready to take your screenwriting career to the next level? If you're a new or aspiring screenwriter who feels lost or stuck in your career, the Working Writer School is here to teach you what writing courses don't. Former student Dylan Evans said, There are a ton of writing classes out there, but this course helped me work through the stuff that I couldn't find anywhere else. I feel more prepared and more knowledgeable to take on the next phase of my writing career. Writer Nicole Bennett said, After taking this course, I have a clear framework for the mindset, productivity, networking, and financial management skills needed for longevity in this industry. And Jay Burlingham calls this course the map. This course has given me a map that I will return to again and again as I move forward in my career as a writer. Use code MMIH for 10% off from now until January 31st and go to theworkingwriter.com. That's theworking, W-E-R-K-I-N-G, writer.com to sign up today. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Alar Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out right now. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who's made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently in, in production slash development on two more. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, welcome director Roxanne Benjamin to talk about her new movie, There's Something Wrong with the Children. Ugh which is coming out on digital and DVD on January 17th. She talks about how she got attached to the film and how she created a sustainable career as a writer-director, which I think we talked about kind of loosely, but I mean, she's made movie after movie and like directed TV shows. It's crazy, this person. She's a great, she's like my hero. After that, we play another round of The Game. The Game. And then we answer a listener question. Oh, for joy. We haven't done one of those in a while. But first, Liz, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I guess I want to provide a quick update. So I think weeks ago, I was like, oh, we're going out to this actor and their household name. Well, I guess today we're going out to them. So I thought it. the only reason why I thought it'd be a funny update to provide is like, this is how absurd making independent films is, is like, a month ago, I thought we were going to do something that day, right? And then something set in motion or someone's schedule gets busy or you have to confer with five different people about the right strategy, the right offer, the right number. Do we want to go out to them before the holidays or after the holidays? Whatever. But apparently today we are officially going to this person. So we'll see what they say and... I will tell Ulrich when we get rejected, but I won't tell anyone else their identity because that would be a bad career move, but that's (laughs) going on there. And then the other thing is, I guess I'll be public about this, Best Friends Forever, which our whole plan was to make this movie in public, Patreon campaign, atypical investing, all of this stuff, like highfalutin principles to make this movie. I had my first test of conscience where... A friend of mine said that they want to bring it to a production company. Mm. And I and I was like, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and I folded like a piece of paper. And I was like, let's 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 test out all opportunities. Let's hear people out. Maybe there's another movie I can make in a highly principled public way that's not this one. Yeah, you'd be dumb not yeah. to do what you did. I mean, I feel like if you told me yeah, someone wanted to take it to a, to a production company or a studio or whatever. And but no, I'm making it my way. I'd be like, right. That'd okay, be silly. Liz, whatever you say. 
you must have all the opportunities in the world to do whatever you want. I mean, I feel like you've got to go after all opportunities. That's totally smart. Yeah, it doesn't mean that we're doing it and it doesn't mean that they want us. It just means we're being pitched to a company that would probably make it in the exact antithesis of what we want. <laughs> it will probably be like, I actually was told it would be like a 15 day shoot, you know, like run and gun very yep. fast. Mm -hmm. And you know what, whatever, I'll buckle up and do it because I want to make this movie and it would be a huge, whatever, any project is a huge step, right? So yeah. uh, when well, we'll you get a fee, you get paid, Amy would get paid, everyone yeah. would get some money, you know, yeah. it would be like the, the dream. So yeah, do it, right? Go for it. See what happens. And I mean, like, let's say that did happen. All the money you've raised so far could just go to like a marketing campaign or well, I lots would actually, of other things. I think I would refund all the Patreon subscribers <laughs> genuinely. And I would just say, here's your money. Thank you so much for believing in us. We'll do another experiment in next year or something like that. Because why? Because you don't think you could talk about it openly? You would have to like keep it hush hush or what, well, like, what would be the reason you wouldn't do it anymore you would just cancel the whole thing it wouldn't be the same experiment if i i actually I was talking to amy about this and we would offer everyone a choice and we'd say like you can either follow along on a new project that we're going to make in public or yes you can hear about this one project we're making in a traditional indie schlocky exploitative way happy to talk about it either way <laughs> i love how you're so down on it it's like oh schlocky and exploited it's like it's just movie making i mean come on you know. Yeah, but it's, well, I think you kind of, you drink the Kool-Aid, you make the Kool-Aid, you know, and then you start <laughs> drinking the Kool-Aid. And so then you start talking like you've had too much Kool-Aid, which is what's happening to me right now. No, I'd be, I would be genuinely grateful. I mean, I was high for like two days when someone, when this person read it and said that they liked it and they wanted to take it to a production company. Like it was a thrill. I've never had someone, I've, I think I very rarely have anyone had anyone do that for something that I wrote. So yeah. I mean, I see it as an opportunity. We'll, we'll get read somewhere else. We'll get considered somewhere else. And then if it doesn't happen, we'll still make it. Still make the movie. Yeah. I think you, you definitely keep it, keep it all going now because like you yeah. never know what's going to happen with this. And I mean, I think you could do both. I think you could like do a part version of your experiment, you know, with the Patreon and have the money go to something that's important for the movie. Because even though you're not going to have a big budget, you just know that, right? Like you're not going to have a lot of money. Like even if you get paid, like you're still going to be fighting. So like any other resources you have will be useful for things, you know, that the studio doesn't want to pay for, or the production company doesn't want to pay for or whatever. So, you know, as long as people aren't feeling betrayed by you, which I don't think they will be, um, unless as long they're as really clear, unless yeah. they drank way too much Kool-Aid, <laughs> yeah, I know. which maybe they did. They I don't know. Have. They might have. I don't know. But it's very exciting. Congratulations is in Thank order. You. That's very we'll cool. See. We'll see what happens. What is going on in your neck of the woods or in your neck of the woods? Yeah. So we're, you know, just pushing the project forward on the one that I'm attached to. I'm kind of hands off at this point and they're just sort of doing their salesy, pitchy stuff. And I heard a rumor through the grapevine that we won't know for a couple of weeks. Once once the pitch is made, it won't be for a few weeks until we have an answer. So still on the back burner. I did see on, on uh, some documents, I quarter one shoot, quarter three delivery. So that makes oh. me excited. Oh. So we'll, we'll see what happens. I'm, I'm not sure, like even if, 
like let's say it all happened as fast as possible like i think that would be hard to to hit but maybe we will so i don't know that's exciting you could do i mean it's what you just march right it would be march mm-hmm. would be the more likely march or april so well, you know? oh because court well that i don't would know be court q2 april i think right yeah that's why i feel like q1 is hard because like yeah march would be the earliest we could possibly shoot and, and let's say like let's say we got confirmation in two weeks yeah. Just a lot has to happen in that time in order to hit. I just don't think it's reasonable. I think like April or May is well, way more reasonable. But we've had conversations with a lot of people who are like, it was real fast. I signed on this date and then they, they were like a month later I was on set. Could happen. Yeah. I mean, Could it's happen. just a lot of pre-production to happen in a month, you know? Yeah. 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 yeah not impossible. Not I impossible. Know. I just would wonder why. Why do we move so fast? Like, let's take some time to like... <laughs> Make it better. Orchestrate this a little bit more. Oh, I I watched Small Town Crimes, our friend of the show, the Nelms Brothers movie. It was very good. I liked it. Incredible production value for a million dollar movie. It looks like at least a five million dollar movie. I was like really impressed with these guys. Or let's even say this. I've seen five million dollar movies that look not as good as their one million dollar movie. (laughs) They're so resourceful. I just really like the Nelms Brothers. Like I just really. Me too. Did I tell you? I don't think I ever told you. They invited me to, um, they're going to hear this. They invited me to a focus group screening of their latest film. <laughs> and I don't know if if I told you that. I don't think I did. And I was. You didn't, but they did. They told they, me. Yeah, I was real mean to the movie. I was yeah, real constructive. Like I did not like it. I liked aspects of it, but I had some issues with a lot of it. And they took it in stride. And again, like everyone there you could tell talk about Kool-Aid they all just adore the Nelms brothers like we were all there because we loved them and wanted to support them in whatever they wanted to do like who cares if I don't like the movie like I'm just one opinion but I'm like now I'm like a fan for life right like they bring me in another time I'll tell them again something very insulting about their film if they want to hear it (laughs) or I can or I'll do a favor in some way that I can help them out with if there's any world where I could do them a favor but like I guess I just want to provide the context that like they have spines of steel and they really seek out yeah i guess opinions from all cultures and communities yeah no they're great and ian's been really helpful he's been answering a lot of questions i've had about this process that i'm in right now because he's been through it a bunch and yeah they're just great and you know i i told him like hey if you want me to watch your movie i will totally be in you know if i am you know they're honored enough to do so but yeah maybe on the next one but, you know, just that movie that they're making sounds like my type of movie. Like, I read the synopsis and looked at it a little bit and saw the cast. Red Right like, Hand? Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. It looks... Yeah. Oh, I want this movie. <laughs> this is a movie I would pay money to go see. So. Yeah. Yeah. It, it sounds cool. And Orlando Bloom, the star. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. What else is going on with me? Nothing else, really, I guess. I don't know. I'm, I'm working on... I just thought this, this project I was working on was going to be done because they had another person... To, to be the assistant editor and then they got sick and so now I'm like filling in until they find a new person <laughs> so my life I thought I was getting my life back because the other movie I'm working with you know other friend of the show Mitch Altieri that one's like almost done so like I basically like have nothing left to do on it pretty much like very few things and I was like seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and then like this thing got thrown in my face and I'm like oh my god oh Jesus oh well you know I think like 
I might put some boundaries up though. Just be like, look, like I can't do, I can't do. I told them like, like I can't do this whole movie. Like I told you, or, or, like I could do it, but it could be done in March. And they're like, they want it done like next week. It's just like, guys, I can't. I can only do so much. So I'm just like kind of getting them set up so they can start next week, and then hopefully they'll find another solution, or this person will get better and be able to do it, or yeah, whatever. it's not your job. So, it's not your job. Just because you want to help out doesn't mean it's your job. I had some deep thoughts. I was thinking earlier today. You know, just thinking about how to manage. Like, you know, let's say this movie I'm attached to actually does happen. Yeah. Like, you know, my I, I was alone with my daughter for the first time this weekend. My wife went up to go visit her family and just have her Aww. time for herself. And, you know, it was really intense and really fun. And I loved it. And it was great. And I was just thinking, like, man, like being away from my daughter for a month would be so hard. You know, it would be so hard. And it's like, but this is what I'm like hoping will happen is this thing that's going to be so hard and challenging. And I'm like, just thinking like, what could I do? Like, I really want my wife and my, my daughter to come with me, but I, I don't think they might, doesn't want to do that. It's like, that's what her, that's not her desire, you know? And so it's like, I don't know what I'd fly back every weekend. Like probably at least once I would do that, you know, but it's going to be, it's going to be challenging. I talked to a a friend of mine who's a single mother who like makes a lot of money in commercials. And, and so she could care, you know, she has childcare and she's got family, whatever. And she was saying that actually what you need to do is kind of like what Alison Starlock was talking about. And it's different for everyone, but this is what I think I'll have to do is I think you have to turn off mom or turn off dad. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, I think you have to just separate and have distance because yes. So you fly back and you see them and then you come back, like think about how much time and energy and creative energy and emotional energy that is, you know, it's like, it may, I think it may be worth it just to rip the bandit off, which I'm really bad at ripping it off. So I'm, I'm like a glass house right now, but, and then just like keep it ripped off and then come back. Like, that's what I think I'm going to have to do. Uh-huh. But like no video FaceTime, no like checking in. Oh uh, yeah, definitely FaceTime and phone calls and things like that. But I think, I think like, like I can't get anything done if my son's next to me in the same room. Like, so how yeah. would I be able to make a movie with them there? Like if right. they're, if they're like in the same building and two rooms over and there's like childcare there, then that's one thing. But if they're, like at Video Village, that's another. No, 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 not at Video Village. I'm just saying like, you know, like being able to come home to them every night versus like, yeah. you know, yeah, only being able to FaceTime for whatever, you know, a month or three weeks or something. It just yeah. seems like it's really, normal. really hard to deal, especially when they're so young. It's like when they're older and they can talk, I think it would be a little bit well, better. And you don't you do know? daycare, right? You're always with Bibi yeah, right now. Always around, yeah. Which is very different from me, right? Like I have daycare and it has been, it's been, it gives me oxygen. It, it's very important <laughs> to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, yeah. I, I, I just have to, I guess I don't have to deal with it. It's whatever, when it, if it happens, when it happens, yeah. you know, if I make a movie, like I'm going to make another movie. Like you just, a, who knows when it's going to be. It could be this year. It could be five years from now. Who knows, you know, like when it'll happen. At some point, I'm going to have to deal with it. And I think, you know, I've decided to, to myself that this is something I want to do. So whatever ends up happening, yeah, I'm just gonna the, do. It. I'm just gonna do it. <laughs> I think know? if the project is worth it, or whatever it is, is that meaningful to you? Then it 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 won't be a question. It won't be as much of a question, right? Like it won't be right. a battle because you'll be saying to yourself, like, no, this is something that is incredibly creative, fulfilling for me as an individual, and will keep fueling me. 
to be a better parent. I think the issue is if you get pulled out to do some shoot that you don't care about or do some task or do some trip that isn't have a clear payoff to it, then the question is like, well, why? Why are you taking the time away? Right, and then it's just right. way more painful, I think. So Yeah, that's that's a good point. Another good point that we can make is to go over to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. Make sure to support us on Patreon. It's what keeps the show alive, which keeps us going. You know, we have our old whole back catalog of episodes that are available only on Patreon. So any episode 299 or earlier is only going to be available to Patreon patrons. And you get that access to that at just $199 a month. Just $199, you get access to over, well, not over, exactly 299 episodes <laughs> of the podcast. Also, we got to give a big, big happy birthday to L for joining us on Patreon and supporting the show. Happy birthday, L. Really, happy really birthday, appreciate <laughs> your support. And L, what a great name or a nickname. I want to I want to know more about L. What is that short for? It's or just everyone actually... knows it's just the letter L. Like it's not E-L-L-E. It's just the letter L. Just L. Just capital L. That's it. Yeah. Which is amazing. We did email L to get more, uh, you know, like if L wanted to shout out or whatever. I did it very late. So we, this didn't make it onto the show. But maybe we'll hear, hear from L in the future and we can like, you know, get some some context on this. Also, don't forget to check out Jambox.io. It's a new royalty-free music and sound effects company with emphasis on the high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay and Martin Scorsese, and they even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty great. Use our code MMIH to get 20% off your yearly subscription today. But without any more delay, here is our chat with Roxanne Benjamin. Can you share your elevator pitch for there's something wrong with the children? This is the hardest question because I suck at this. This is probably why all my pitches fail. (laughs) So two couples go on a weekend trip. One of them has kids. One of them doesn't. The couple with kids talks the childless couple into watching the kids for the evening. And when the couple loses those children somehow and finds them again, they start to think, or one of them starts to think, that they have not come back the same. And horror movie ins- <laughs> Love it. How many days did you shoot the film? 22. Nice. What can you speak up with regard to the budget? Good question. Probably nothing. <laughs> Contractually, I think they hold that stuff very close to the vest. But it is, you know, the way they have structured this is as a series, as a TV series, even though like all of these are individual movies with epics. So I think they amortize their budgets across multiple films. So it might actually be a hard answer to give because the production's up and running. They have, you know, some of the department heads are already in place the way they would be in film. Their post deals are already in place the way they, or I'm sorry, the way they would be in TV. The post deals are most of them in place the way they would be in TV as well. So there's, it's like a very strange hybrid structure between TV and film. So I think that kind of affects what that overall budget would be anyway. So I don't think even knowing that number would necessarily tell you anything because it's not a real number, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Can you say like, what did it feel like to be on set? Like, did it feel like an over a hundred thousand dollar movie or under a $5 million movie? Can you say anything to that effect? 
It's tough because I'm coming off of doing a lot of TV stuff and these TV budgets are nuts, you know? I mean, I'm not even doing big TV either, but like most of these things are like five to 10, not probably like five to 7 million for television. And uh, you're getting to play with all these toys and, you know, you shooting sometimes like 13 days, 12, 13 days. Most of them are supposed to be nine, but, you know, bigger than that. And then COVID and all these other things have like stretched out these these shoot days. And then the IATSE changes have like shortened the actual length of each day, but put more days on the schedule. So Mm. it's a a tough thing to say because it feels like these TV shows are massive and you have access to all the toys. Anything that you're making at this point that's like five million and under in the feature film space feels like an indie, (laughs) weirdly. (laughs) I mean, there's a point where it feels like you get to, I feel like the difference between 2 million and 5 million doesn't feel that different, honestly, when you're making a feature at this point, because so much of it is going to stuff that's off screen at that point. It's weird too, because I, you know, started making these tiny movies for like 300 grand, but like they're non-union and all of us are doing like every job. And that's not like really a production business model that you can replicate after a certain point, you know, or that you should really. So I think a lot of my earlier smaller budget movies had a lot more resources than they, I don't want to say than they should, but like had a lot more resources because we were all kind of like working for peanuts and nice. not like in guilt or unions or anything. Yeah. Well, here, here's the actual question I was supposed to ask you. What was the origin of the story slash how do you know how this idea came? Do you know how this idea came together? And then slash how did you get involved in it? So I'd been talking to the Blumhouse TV department about a couple of different movies. I'd sent them some stuff. They'd sent me some stuff. And then After that, I think they had read one of my scripts that took place a lot outdoors. They sent me this one because that's kind of like most of my stuff takes place outdoors when it comes to genre. So they sent me this one that they thought would be up my alley. And I was like super into it for a number of reasons. I feel like it it subverts a lot of tropes in terms of who's getting gaslit because normally it feels like it's the female protagonist who's getting gaslit in the film and that no one believes and you know their mental health is questioned and and that was kind of subverted subverted here as well as you know kind of halfway through the movie there's a protagonist handoff and you have to switch the POV and so that's really interesting to try to figure out like how do you seed that in so it doesn't feel abrupt when it happens and then how do you you know make it feel like yeah just a natural progression really and that you're now with this new character and as invested as you were with the the person whose pov you're mostly in in the first half so that that was kind of like an interesting thing as a director to try to think about so that that kind of drew me to it that and that like there's a lot of relationship stuff in here that this is really like a dark comedy for half the movie before it like becomes a horror movie so that that felt like a lot more depth to the characters than a lot of the stuff that I had been reading. So yeah, that kind of drew me to it quite a bit. Where the idea came from for them, I feel like they told me at some point, one of them had something like this happen in terms of like, they were watching a friend's kids and then like lost the kids. And we're like, fuck, what do we do? 
And I think from that, like became the genesis of like this idea, you know, of like, what, what, what do you do if that happens? And then it comes back and it's not the kids anymore. <laughs> so that, that I think was the genesis of the idea for them. And, and I think there was definitely a lot more of like the mythology in it, in the script originally that, you know, uh, and a lot more kid action and set pieces that, you know, because of the number of shoot days and because of like how much time you actually have to shoot with the kids had to be changed quite a bit. So hopefully it's still, you know, they still feel like it's true to the movie that they originally wrote. We're trying to put together a timeline here. So when when did you first get approached with this script? And what was, I mean, the question is, how long did you spend working on the film from that idea till the release? So when were you approached, mm-hmm. with, approached with this script? And then when did you go into production from that point? I think I was approached in September. And then I was on the ground in October. Oh. And then we shot November, December of uh, 2021. Yeah. And then post was the beginning of this year. Very quick edit and very quick post because it's again, it's like a hybrid TV and feature model. So a lot less post time than I'm used to a lot less and then turn the movie over in for QC in May, the end of May. The movie was done at the end of May, but then there's always like QC fixes that take like two weeks or so because it's, you know, digital artifacting or there's always some sort of issue. Nothing ever passes QC. There's always issues in the so the delivery of the film started at the end of May and I think finished in June, the beginning of June. So it's been handed off since then, ready to go. Nice. And then last question is, what would you change about the film or the experience if you could change one thing? One thing? <laughs> or two? <laughs> but <I'm- laughs> I mean, I think it's the same for every filmmaker. It's time. You always want more time, you know, especially with something like this. 22 days is rough for a movie that has so many moving pieces and special effects and practical effects and kids, you know, and limited hours that you can spend with the kids. Definitely more time. There's more time. Same thing in post, more time. Let's get into this TV theatrical hybrid model. It's fascinating to me. I'm learning a lot about reducing overhead in terms of like collectives and pods and things like that in the indie film world. And it sounds like this is a much more systemic version of that, right? I mean, I mean, we're deriving our ideas based off of what the studios do. Did you know the other creators? Did you get to see cuts of the other films? Is there any sort of collab- creative collaboration that occurred between your film and the other projects uh, with Epics? No, no, they're all individual movies. They're just categorized as categorized as TV. I think for like, I don't know, guild reasons or budget reasons or something, but they're all individual movies. This came up actually with the DGA because I wanted to do something with the credits. You'll notice in the credits, there's a big jump. There's a large chunk of time between when the actual head credits are and when the title pops up. And in features, you can do that, but in TV, you can't. And it's a longstanding precedent. We don't want to break that basically the director's name has to be within like 10 seconds of the title coming up. And it's, you know, all it's they've, they've established this and it was fought for. So when I wanted to do something different, and this is classified as a TV episode, I had to go before the guild before like a board and make my case for that because it's not a precedent they want to change. And basically, I had to prove to them that this was not a TV episode, that this was a movie, even though it's classified as a TV episode, because they are independent productions. There is no showrunner, there is no TV writers room, there's no TV involved at all. 
as as it's known in our industry. It's just a classification on paper. So that I think like they they agreed with me. It doesn't change the classification, but uh, they agreed with me in terms of like what it was and what these are, that these are films. So I was allowed to keep the the distance between the title and my name, basically, which has to be the last credit that you see before the title comes up. So I want to hear a little bit about how you got into conversations with Blumhouse. Is this just something that's been gone, ongoing with you for a while, like through your TV? Or was there a certain like connection that got you to them? Was it through your management? Like, how did this whole thing start in the first place? It was through my manager. I think it probably has... It's probably because I had, I had done a bunch of TV at that point and had been doing a lot of TV. Um, I don't know how familiar they actually were with my feature genre work. I think it's because I had done a lot a bunch of TV at that at that point. But it came through my manager because he had had other clients work on other series that they had done, series that they had done that were like TV, but also films. I think for either the Into the Dark or whatever the other, mm-hmm. uh, what was that? Yeah. Welcome to the Blumhouse. The Body. Or, yeah. One, one of those two that were, you know, with different distributors. And so he had been through this model before with like other clients. So he had put me up, I think, for one of the films that was had an open directing assignment. And uh, then I started talking to them about talking to them about it. And I had sent them one of my scripts to see if they would be interested in doing that. It didn't fit the model because it's, you know, they all shoot in New Orleans and around New Orleans and mine needed like the ocean and cliffs and all this stuff. And there's no cliffs in New Orleans. It's the river Delta. So they saw that, you know, I was interested in, again, shooting a bunch of stuff outdoors and saw that and they were like, oh, we'll try this one. You know, what do you think of this one? And that's kind of where I got involved. So it, it just came through like those channels through my management and then, you know, kind of developing that relationship with them and looking for like a project within the series that would fit. Can we go even further back and look at your career? I I just was doing some cursory research of you and I was like, oh, this is interesting. She produces when she doesn't direct sometimes. She writes when she doesn't direct sometimes. She directs when she doesn't write sometimes. Like it, it it was like very refreshing to see that. And perhaps I'm interpreting it wrong. But can tell me a little bit about the building of your career in terms of those key leadership positions. Let's see, I started kind of as like writing for horror blogs and covering like film festival horror movies. From there, started working for a company that owned one of them, like coincidentally. And since I became kind of like the resident horror expert at that company, when they were starting looking into starting kind of like a distribution label of horror films, like they were coming to me for like a lot of suggestions, that kind of thing. And eventually we're like, well, why don't you just kind of run it? And I was like, okay. So then I started going to a lot more film festivals and going to like acquire a lot of these kind of smaller independent and foreign horror films for a couple of years. And from that got to know a lot of like the kind of indie horror directors and writers that were like up and coming. And from that, we decided to with the company make VHS, which was basically just an anthology of, you know, found footage shorts with a lot of the directors that Brad Miska and I were both friends with. We were like, well, why don't we just instead of, you know, acquiring a bunch of movies, why don't we make our own and see how that goes? Then when that got into Sundance, we kind of immediately started on the next one after we sold the first one to Magnolia. So kind of just like snowballed from there. So from that point, I was just kind of like in development and production instead of acquisitions. And from there, once I had done a couple of those, and I started working with like another group of producers on like bigger budgeted horror movies with Snoot Entertainment with Keith and Jess Calder, who did Your Next and The Guest. And we made uh, Riley Stern's first movie, Faults, and worked with Evan Katz on some stuff. Like that's when I had been around enough 
production that I started feeling like what I really wanted to do was write and direct my own stuff. So I left left working with like these companies and just kind of went off on my own. And then Brad had come to me about Southbound with Radio Silence. You know, I had told him I would only produce that and like kind of help develop it and make that movie if I could write and direct. And he was like, okay. And I was like, great. I should have done this earlier. <laughs> I know it's that easy. But I think, you know, the reason it was that easy was because I had spent so many years like making these films at that point and kind of knew how to produce them in and out. You know, I was the kind of one unknown element in a group of known elements mm. for when it came to like getting this financed with MPI. Like, I was already a producer of a successful you know, horror franchise and all of these other directors were like big up and coming directors. So there was less risk involved in financing something that I would be writing and directing because I wasn't the only one involved. Whereas if I had gone a different route and tried to, I think, make a feature film on my own at first, I think it would have been much, much more difficult. So I feel like it's a kind of unique position to have been in and a unique route to have taken to get into directing and writing. So after Southbound, did the double X just happen right after or was it another one with the same company? Like, did you have to pitch for that one? Or was that just like kind of like an extension of having done Southbound? I think they had come to me originally, XYZ had come to me originally about producing one of them and then working with Annie with St. Vincent on writing hers. So I originally came in as just a producer and a writer, and then they needed another director for a segment. And they were like, oh, well, we'll just have you do it. And I was like, great. (laughs) So that was another one where it was just happened to be like right time, right place when another director fell out and couldn't work anymore with her schedule to do a segment. And they had to get the last segment done because it was already pre-sold to Magnolia and had to be released and delivered by a certain time. And so I just wrote one real quick and was like, what about this? And they were like, okay, great. Let's do that. And that's how I got to do my short for XX. So it kind of, you know, I came in through a different route and then ended up directing just because of, (laughs) I think, expediency for them. (laughs) So yeah, those were the first two things I directed. And then from that was able to get Brighton Rock financed because it was very low budget and working with the company that I had worked with for both XX and Southbound, which is Soapbox Films, who are producers of kind of like a lot of small independent horror movies. But their main thing is like they work in advertising and marketing for like these big studios doing like Marvel and, you know, Jim Henson Muppets stuff on the marketing side. And that's kind of like their bread and butter. And then they're kind of like side businesses because they're huge film nerds and, you know, filmmakers in their own right and make their own films, like it's just financing these kind of smaller budget things and was able to flip that around to Magnolia pretty quickly as well ahead of time. So I think that also helped that it was already kind of like it had a backstop deal basically at Magnolia. So it was, again, less risk adverse for them to like kind of come in and finance. This is not a question. You have such a cool career. Okay, now here's the question. Both Auric and I are on, you know, I'm on my third feature, he's on his second, and we're working with the traditional financing system for pre-sales and markets and things like that, casting for value, quote unquote. I look at Zach Gelford in your cast and I think about, you know, Midnight Mass. I think about how amazing he is, but I also think about him being, I'm curious what kind of creative freedom you got when you cast your film and if he has sales value or if you got a lot of freedom because of the commercial value of the genre. And in general, do you experience a lot of freedom in terms of cast? 
I think this one is very unique because since it is in this TV model that they're doing, they're all financed. So there's not really a push to have necessarily like recognizable cast in them. And they're also like kind of restrained by what their budget is. And in terms of like, you know, they can't go out and spend $5 million for an actor to come in for a week or something, you know, for, for a film. So casting is less of a big deal, I think, than if this is, I mean, it's a completely, completely different animal, I think, than trying to go through pre-sales and cobble together like financing from different sources and gap financing and everything else because it's already like it's already got a home it's already got distribution it's already financed it has a model that they've proven through like these other series and through like this series that had already been done so i mean there was you know our casting director had brought up a number of names and like we all kind of like between the producers and myself had had been looking at certain people but like he was definitely at the top of my list and radio silence had worked with him Tyler and Matt on Devil's Due for Fox. So I also had people who were like connected to him who, you know, could basically give him a recommendation that like, I'm not a crazy person. So he, you know, took a meeting with me about the film and I told him how, what I wanted to do with it and what my thoughts were. And so then he was like, cool, I'm in. So yeah, the it was definitely a different casting process because it was just like, here's the amount we have allotted for cast and here's available and here's who might be interested and will come out for like a smaller pay because like they're interested in the project or the director or what have you. And so it kind of got put together that way versus, you know, I've had a number of projects that have been trying to do pre-sales and, and attaching bigger actors. And even when that happens, it's not a guarantee. Like I've had a couple of movies that just didn't happen. You know, even once you got cast, cast interested and attached with no financing or with just like, here's the amount that we have from like tax incentives that we'll be able to get back. It's still like cobbling together that financing is getting harder and harder with cast. It's like you need to have a list, you know, more. Marvel level actors to make like a $2 million movie or it doesn't get made. It's just uh, getting like more and more of a condensed bottleneck, I think for independent filmmaking. I have yet to make a movie in that model that's pre-sales and putting together financing. Yeah, it seems very challenging. From what I've been hearing, it's like the the actors that the distributors want are in high demand, so they can pick from so many different projects. So if one doesn't have financing, they don't even give a shit. They'll just, oh, we'll go on to the next one that does, you know? So it's, yeah, yeah I'm in that, that process is- right now, so... <laughs> I feel for you. I feel like a lot of that is a bottleneck with their agents and managers too, because they don't want to take projects to their clients that don't have financing behind them, you know, or if they do take those to them and they're like, wow, this is a really good project. Like, I want you to check it out. I know the filmmaker, et cetera. It's still going to be down the list on reading it to like the ones that are actually offers to those actors that they have to read because an offer has been made that they have to pass on. So it's like you getting the attention, I think, of of the people you even want to talk to for the roles is like also getting harder and harder. So, yeah, I, I feel for you in that. And I have been in your position and <laughs> am still as well in a number of projects. <laughs> so I want to hear a little bit about like your movement from your first feature into TV. Was that like something that you like was a very calculated decision on your part where you like wanted to work in TV specifically, or was it something there like after you finished that feature, these were sort of the offers that were coming your way. I definitely was having trouble. I think getting another movie off the ground after Brighton Rock, Brighton Rock is such a weird animal because it's like a, almost like a chamber piece drama of like one person in one location and then their biggest action is a negative you know it's like not that they have to do something to solve a problem it's like they have to not do something which is not leave 
And that's like a tough, I think, sell. And it was also like a weird experimental film to me because I made it in this kind of like 60s, like poppy old yeller kind of way, you know? So it's <laughs> when you see that as like your feature example, like people are like, what? You know, it's it's hard to gauge like, <laughs> oh, the film that this person makes or like, oh, now I can see them doing a horror movie with children. You know, it's like a weird, <laughs> other than the fact that all of my stuff is outdoors, there's not really a through line to the stuff I make, like outside of outdoors and female protagonists really so i think i was having a tough time getting a movie off the ground at that point and then you know i have a lot of friends who work at shutter and they were looking for directors and writers for creep show so i think i got put up for that and then met with greg you know because all my anthology work he was like excited about that new new vhs and you know i think i got that because of all the anthology stuff you know just kind of like the weird indie stuff i had been doing because greg's a huge horror nerd so creep show is what got me into tv which is also kind of a weird way into tv because it's anthology which is all the stuff i had done and had experience Experience in and each one of those is its own little thing and its own little short. So I got to do like the two shorts and they break them up and put them in different episodes. So it's like you're there to make two together, but those two together aren't like the one episode. They break them up. So that came up on my, you know, IMDb is like I've done two episodes of TV when really it's kind of like one and it's not even really TV because it's anthology and its own story. <laughs> and you're getting to play in kind of like the creep show universe, which is like very stylistic and very practical effects oriented, but also it's like a very indie production. Lucky for me, Roberto, who makes chilling or made chilling adventures of Sabrina and Riverdale and all these other kind of teen murder mystery shows that are very stylistic is a very, very big horror fan. And so he had seen that stuff and knew that work. And so when I went in to meet with him on that, which is something that I think my agents just set up was to go meet with him because there was like an open episode like he you know we kind of nerded out about horror together so really it's like a combination of like again this kind of history of working in anthologies and short film narrative got me to into a room where someone else was like a horror fan <laughs> basically yeah that's again i think probably a weird way to get into television i do feel like a lot they're looking for a lot more you know female and and minority directors and diverse diverse voices for TV now than they used to be. But even then, back in that was like 2016 or something, it didn't seem like it was that. That hadn't really taken off yet. So I feel very lucky to have kind of started getting into TV on the earlier side because it's definitely like kept me alive while I'm trying to get other films off the ground. I will be murdered if I don't ask about the Night of the Comet remake that you are doing. Can you tell us how that came about? That one was a meeting with Orion, Orion uh, Films. And Dan Kagan was still over there at the time and he's great. And I'd had a, just a general with him and he had sent me like a list of all the properties that MGM had that Orion had. And I was like, oh shit, you have Night of the Comet. Like you have no <laughs> idea what a Comet fan I am. And he was like, oh, come back if you have a pitch. And I was like, I am locking the door to this office and I'm going to give you the pitch right now. <laughs> like I already have it. <laughs> But I told it to him and then he's like, write it out. And then I wrote out this this treatment basically for what the movie would be. And he was like, sweet, let's do it. And that was like, uh, again, he had a relationship with my manager, I think, for other projects too. So that was another thing that came through my manager, Jeremy Platt over at Grandview, who also reps like a lot of other kind of horror directors and writers in the space. So he has a lot of these relationships with like the specifically genre people who are making things like on the executive side. So then, you know, turned in that script and then kind of Orion Films like, folded at the time. 
then it kind of went to another division, but then that division got bought by another thing. You know, it's like in the process of putting that together, it's had a couple of different iterations and like four different companies because things keep getting like bought by other things or consolidated or named something else. And it's like, it's very confusing because then you're just working with a whole new group of like executives and you're kind of starting from the beginning. Where it is now is like tough to say at this point in time. Also, I don't know what I can say, but uh, it's still afloat. It's still out there in some way, you know, it's, that's like the most nebulous update in the world. I guess I could just say it's not dead. <laughs> <laughs> so you might be one of the most, you know, accomplished female directors in genre, especially horror that we've talked to. Do you feel like any pressure at all in that, in being, you know, one of the few? Or is it, is it like, a, do you feel like the boys club kind of mentality at all? Or has it just been like kind of a really great experience working in genre, you know, since the beginning? It's, you know, it's interesting. It's an interesting question because it's not, I never really thought about like, gender at all until like five or six years ago when everybody started pointing out that I was a female filmmaker. And I was like, oh, I thought I was just a filmmaker. Right. <laughs> and pointing out the fact that like, there's only like, you know, one out of every 10 directors is like a female director who gets to do anything. And like the top 200 grossing films, there's only like one female director, you know, and like all this stuff and all these statistics. And it was very like demoralizing at the time because it was like, I almost felt like I was like ignorant to that, completely ignorant to that fact because I was so used to just being surrounded by men all the time in this profession that like it didn't, it was just the norm. And it never occurred to me that that was something that like would change or could change. Like I, I knew female directors. And I also like tried to champion their work and we all, we have like a network and we all try to help each other out. But I don't think a lot of us were like really actively aware of the fact that we were like an endangered species, I guess, until everyone started pointing it out. And then for a couple of years, all I heard was the only reason I was getting meetings or the only reason I got that TV show or the only reason that like I was considered for X, Y, or Z was because of my gender, was because I was a woman. So that for a couple of years was like, okay, I guess, well, the only reason you were considered before was because you were a man. So fuck you, you know, like if 90% of you are considered because of your gender, like if I'm being considered because of mine, like good for me. But then it turned into like, it was like, you're not getting any work because you're a woman. And then it was like, you're only getting work because you're a woman. And it's like, well, which which one is it? Like, you can't have both. It can't be the excuse for both. You know, so it, it, it's a very it's a very interesting thing to see how the like cycle goes of like people's reactions to that. And I think part of it, honestly, is that like when men in particular are not getting work, for something, I think they're told by their agents and managers that it's because they want women and minorities. Uh -huh. Didn't get this because you are a white man and they just want diverse voices right now. So like that's why you didn't get it. Not because the the other people were better, but because of some other reason. So I don't know. Fuck that fragile masculinity yeah. bullshit like of, of it being like, oh, it's an excuse to use of why your client didn't get a job. So then that becomes the kind of narrative to like protect somebody's ego. Whereas like, I guess I was protected in a way because I didn't know that I should have had any like a fragile ego about not getting hired because I was a woman for things because maybe I was just not hired because like my shit wasn't as good. I don't know. It's tough to think about because if you think about the actual statistics, it makes you realize like, oh, fuck, I thought the bar was here, but the bar is actually here. Well, I guess I have to 
we do this to get here then? But it's just always been that way. So I didn't think about it. And the way I try to look at it is that like, that just makes me a better filmmaker. If I have to do 130% to get 70% of the work, then that just makes me a better filmmaker. And hopefully, you know, I can pull more people with me when that happens. That's really interesting. Sorry, Liz, just that like, yeah, when you're successful, it's because of this reason. And then when you're not successful, it's because of this. It's like, I don't know. It seems crazy. What a crazy thing for people to say, you know? Anyways, that was not a question. It was just a frustrated, frustrated comment. I think it's time for our final five questions. And the first question is, what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Hmm. You know, we always trip people up with this question. We should, Ulrich, we should not ask this as the first question, I realize now, because it's, <laughs> it's a lot to ask at we'll first. We'll come up with another question for the first question going forward. <laughs> I mean, there's like a trite answer of like wear comfortable shoes, but it's not wrong. <laughs> always be prepared, but that's like, isn't that like a Boy Scout motto or Girl Scout motto? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Probably just like don't don't take things personally because everybody's coming from a different everybody has different like pressures on them, like the actors for what they're doing, the the crew to get done by a certain time, the executives to produce a certain amount of financial gain. And all of these all of these things tend to be in conflict together with each other in terms of like art versus commerce. So that's always going to be an issue. And so when something is like not necessarily the way you wanted it or can't be done in a certain way, or you're getting notes that you're like, what? Or something has to change because of whatever financial reason. It's just, it's not you, you know, necessarily. It's just, there's a lot of pressure on everyone in this industry. So just remembering that, I mean, I guess that's just like be, have empathy, I guess is my, my advice. I do remember going around before I made my first feature though and asking a bunch of my director friends, like, what is the one thing you would say? And I wish I had written them all down. But a lot of them were like, wear comfortable shoes, get there an hour early, make sure to go over the next day with your AD and your DP before you leave for the night. So there aren't any surprises, double and triple check everything. You know, that's that's kind of it. Also know what you can lose, know what you need for the story and what you can lose. Because when it's like daylight is in three seconds and you have to get like these three things, which is the one that you need for the story and which is the one that's cool. You got to lose the one that's cool because you got to get the one that you need for the story, you know? So that that's kind of like the things I think I heard a lot when I went around and asked that question. What's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received? <laughs> mm, also a hard question. Maybe I just haven't asked for enough advice. Shit. I can tell you the worst advice I got about pitching. Oh, I want to hear that. Yeah. And it's like that you just have to go in and take control and like they don't know what they want. So you got to tell them what they want. <laughs> you got to go in and just like slap your dick on the table and be like, this is how it is. You can see how that might work for some people and might not work for others. Because when some people do it, it's like, that's a real go getter. He really knows what he wants. He has a strong vision. <laughs> if I went in and did that, they'd be like, she's difficult. I don't know. She's difficult. I just, I don't know. So I think that's probably the worst advice I've ever gotten. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? I want to blow shit up. <laughs> I guess that's my goal. I want to make a big action movie and blow shit up. <laughs> Amazing. I'm a big like, you know, action movie fan. I'm obsessed with John Wick. I'm obsessed with 87 North. I'm obsessed with stunts. I try to use nice. um, Casey Adams as my stunt coordinator and he's a stunt man in everything I do because Casey lets me like throw him through things. He's also a great actor, but, you know, he's a ba very great collaborator and like, oh, we could do this because I can do this, you know, so we could try that, you know, so that's 
I, I'm very interested in the stuff that usually gets sent to second unit because of time, second unit action in particular. So that's a that's that's a goal for me as a filmmaker is to make a big fucking action movie with female protagonists. Nice. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Hmm. Get contracts, even if it's with friends. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Good it's one. just easier. It's just better. It it keeps everybody like knowing exactly what the terms are and keeps not even just for myself, but for the other people I've like collaborated with so that no one has any expectations that could lead to resentments because you all had a different idea of what you were doing. I think that would be the big thing. Last question. Is making movies hard? If you can do anything else, do that. <laughs> because you have to give your entire life to making a movie. Everything. You have to give everything, every piece of your soul, every ounce of money you have, every hour that you could spend with family or friends or learning a, and any sort of other skill, you have to put towards the mental effort and physical effort of making a film. If it is not in your blood that this is something you need to make and need to get out of you and need to put in the world, you will fail. You will not have the endurance to get through it. So just make sure it is something that feels like you need the air to breathe and you're drowning. That's the story you need to tell. Otherwise, do anything else. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I think that's like a good mantra to tell yourself before you make a movie, like whatever yeah. it is. Like, you know, be like, okay, am I ready to die for this movie? Well, not literally, but almost. Like, then go make it. What it you is. Know? <laughs> Cause, uh, yeah, you, you don't want to go through it if you don't, if you don't love it to death. You know, it's too much. Yeah. Too much. I, there's more time. I want a bonus question, Liz. Can I have a bonus question? Yeah. Here we <laughs> well, go. Let's ask Roxanne. <laughs> well, we have time, right? <laughs> well, Roxanne, are you okay with the bonus question? Sure. <laughs> I want to know what's your favorite stunt that you've done in any of your projects, you know, across shorts, you know, anthology features, whatever TV. Like, I'd love to hear like your favorite stunt that you ever did or you, you know, shot. It's funny because my stunts are also something that like I love, I want to do, I'm obsessed with. But then, you know, there's always the risk, even with every precaution and every assurance and everything quadruple checked of injury. And I I like this pit of my stomach feeling of watching when we're about to do a stunt is like horrific for me because I'm so worried for my people. But at the same time, they're fucking awesome. It would probably be throwing Casey through the RV window in XX. That was so fun because it was an air ram that he had to run and hit the air ram and then just hit the window just right. We had to get the squibs just right so they break the window right as he hits it and not before. Ooh. And then he crashes through. Yeah. Wow. That was probably that was probably the most fun, I would say. How how many times did you do it? Twice. Because wow. it's you know, the window, like put first the glass cleanup alone. And my section of XX was shot in three days. Oh, so shit. Yeah, it was only three days to shoot that. So that nighttime stuff was like one day. That was the only time we'd be able to do it. So that was like, it had to had to be right. And we only had so much time to do it. And the glass cleanup was like a big deal because also I don't want to throw him through a window again. And then he's landing in like glass that's already there is not the same oh as it breaking. 
and installing that glass on the back of the RV, like getting a new piece on there. And it was a huge piece of glass that like, I am shocked that we managed to not break because I have done when we did southbound, you know, there's a window break in Patrick section jailbreak. So, you know, he gets pulled out, you know, his someone gets pulled out through the window there and they have to break that window. And we had like, four pieces of candy glass to be the window for that because it had to be since someone was being pulled through it and someone's punching through it. It wasn't real, real glass. You know, it's like two of them broke just in transport because they're so fragile. So that was like nerve wracking. Just thinking like, God, what if something happens to this glass on the way here or in putting it in, you know? Yeah. So that was very nerve wracking. Well, and then to cap off the interview, where, what's your call to action for people who are listening? How can they support you and how can they support the film? Tell your friends about it. Honestly, that's the biggest thing is tell people about it. You know, it's a very crowded market marketplace and it's being released without, you know, it's not like it's coming through a festival. It's not like it's, it's in a time period too, when it's like a very difficult time, I think, to get attention on anything, particularly just something that's coming out on VOD and it's not theatrical. So just if you like the movie, tell people about the movie. (laughs) Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber, back to the show. Liz, what do you remember about our chat with Roxanne? I remember thinking that she was so cool and then being very annoyed in my internet because I don't think it was working very well. Maybe you remember. <laughs> no, yeah, no, it wasn't. <laughs> there was like, uh, so maybe people could tell what they listened to the show, but it's like there was this weird delay for me. But she was saying such, like the fact that she came, from my recollection, tell me if I'm wrong, but I remember her story of being like a producer who kind of came in through that pathway. And I just love that. And knowing figuring out the right timing for her entree as a director because of her network, her connections, her talent as a producer at at the beginning. And that's something that I really identify with. And also just like, yeah, I agree. You were saying that she's like dream career. I think she's a dream career. So I just thought ideal guest, cool, cool lady. Yeah. Very cool person. Really interesting, like her career path and how she's able to, you know, kind of, you know, take advantage of situations to like get these films made, you know, and like, I wouldn't say take advantage. That's not really what I mean. I guess like, like when an opportunity comes, like she jumped on it and nailed it. Right. You know, and I think that that's like a theme that we've seen with every successful director is that like they've got an opportunity and they don't pass it up and they don't squander it, you know, like they make the most out of those situations. So I thought that was interesting. And just, you know, just hearing about her trajectory as a director, I thought was fascinating. And I'm I'm really excited to see where she goes next. But it feels like, you know, she's like, you know, at the the takeoff point, you know, like, is this going to be bigger and bigger movies going forward for her? So I'm excited to see, see what happens. But what I'm really excited about, Liz, is to ask you the question of the week for the game, the game. So people, if you have never listened to the show, this is a game that our producer, Eric Toms, has invented. And it's basically a filmmaker quandary, like a filmmaker conundrum, like you're making a movie and this happens like, how do you solve for this problem? Because we all know that, like, on set, a, a, ma- a million, like, crazy, haphazard, 
unknown things will happen at all times and you have to figure out a way to deal with it. So we just thought this was a fun way to like, you know, explore some of these hypothetical situations and like what we would do in those situations. So Liz has not heard this question. She does not know what I'm going to ask. It's going to be completely fresh. I've only read it once, so I'm going to try to keep it fresh in my head too when I answer. But here we go. Eric wanted to say this is a little bit different than usual. There's no multiple choice. So you are working on a film. There is a lot riding on the film in that it's the biggest budget you've ever had. You have two prominent stars in the lead. So let's say Angela Jolie and, um, you know, Brad Pitt. Uh, no. However, <laughs> no. Who, who, who Wait, you hold want? on. John Boyega. John Boyega and Angel- Michael Angelina. That's fine. I just, I want John Boyega. Can we have okay, John things? Boyega. Sure. There we go. I love John Boyega. He's so great. That would be amazing. However, one is adamant about the fact that they want a rehearsal with the other lead, but the other lead's process is that they always go into a scene fresh and they will not rehearse. How do you deal with two creative processes when they are dramatically opposed to one another? Oh, wow. I feel like if Sean heard this question, he would pull out like 15 different scenarios of like Robert De Niro versus Dustin Hoffman versus like he would like know these like method people versus non-method people versus, you know. So I think that a a better versed individual could pull from from case studies. My first instinct is that the bigger name gets to dictate what we do. Like if they're on par with each other, if there are two stars that are on par with each other, that is more difficult for decision making than if you have one star who is bigger than the other. Right. So it's like if it were like, let me pick new actors who have a very clear disparity. So like, oh, God, why is this so difficult? Who is in everything? Leonardo DiCaprio and on John Boyega, like Leonardo DiCaprio green lights movies in a second has a massive Oscar history has worked with the top tier directors you know like there's a certain notoriety with him a certain power and influence with him if he mandated that he wanted rehearsal then I would try to encourage rehearsal for everyone right because if not the the project may fold what what are you thinking I mean, like, what if you try, I'm trying to pick up like two actors who are like yeah. equally hot and equally yes, equal big so hard but it's like Margot Robbie and like who's like very equal to like Christian Bale is tough because he's older like I, you can't you no, gotta eliminate I think that's age good because Christian I mean but he's older so it's like a little bit Wayne but he's like established such a massive name for himself so right but I feel I like I think fair. Margot Robbie would like bend to, to Christian Bale because she'd be like like, oh, Christian Bale is like Christian Bale. But like, right. but like, who, who's like a Margot Robbie equivalent? Like, um, I don't know, Ryan Gosling? Timothy almost? Chalamet. Maybe Chalamet. Timothy Chalamet. Chalamet. That's perfect. Like, because so yeah, what do you think? Like, who, so what do you do in that situation when it's like two people who are like on the same trajectory? Yeah, it's way basically. harder when they're the same. And I, I guess I want to acknowledge out loud why this is hard, because maybe this is not obvious, but. An actor's process is incredibly personal and could impact the rest of the shoot, right? Like if you don't respect their process and if you don't cater to them to a degree and you have the resources to do so, you damage your relationship with them and you also damage their relationship to the character potentially. Like they might not be as connected to the character or connected to the project, but I could always hide behind 
one actor's demands. That's why that's my like sneaky, like I have no spine answer that I started off with. But like, what is <laughs> what is the right thing to do? The right thing to do is probably to create out a process that works for both of them. And if one really wants rehearsal, you create a rehearsal process where everyone but the one star who won't rehearse is a part of it. You know, it's like, let's say Margot Robbie really wants rehearsal, then you create rehearsals for every single scene other than with this with Timothy Chalamet, who we've decided doesn't want rehearsal. And with Timothy Chalamet, you protect his ability to have a freshness that works for him on set. Like, that's probably what I would do. But I, I think that even in real life, like, that's very theoretical. In real life, I don't even think that would succeed. Because I think <laughs> Margot Robbie would be like, no, I want to rehearse everything, not just every scene, you know, but with Timothy Chalamet. And then Timothy Chalamet, uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> what he's going to say. So I guess I'm acknowledging that this is you're going to have to break someone's heart in this process. You're going to have to offend someone, I think. And therefore, I would defer to the person who wields the most amount of influence on the film set, unfortunately, which is not the right way to do things, but it's probably what I would do. What would you do? <laughs> yeah, this is kind of a, an amazing question that I love a lot. So I think what I would do, and it's very naive, but I would be like, look, get in the room with the two of them. So it's me and the two actors and let's just hash it out. Let's just be honest and open and talk this through. Like, this is what you want. This is what you want. They obviously contradict like what's a way that we can make this work for both of you that everyone's happy like how can we do this like i could rehearse with this one person for these scenes you know um and, and fill in the role if you have another we could let's find another actor or somebody else you're comfortable with like maybe from your staff or someone you know who you'd want to fill in for that person so like you can like, create that process and then and then you know that actor who doesn't want to do it you know they come in and they have it fresh, but we've already worked it out to a degree that works for the other actor. And we'll just let that the the actor who has done the rehearsals, like let them guide the process, you know, yeah. and then if the other actor throws something new and fresh and whatever, then we'll we'll adjust and we'll we'll do that beautiful dance that we always do in filmmaking where we just, you know, find the new the new thing on set together, because no matter how much planning how much rehearsal, how much blocking you do, you're always going to find something new in the moment or you you you, there, you have to be open to that new thing in the moment or you can be that new thing in the moment can come, which is what this other actor who wants to do no rehearsals is excited about. Right. Right. You know? the magic. So yeah, I think like just being open to that, I, I think is important. So I don't know. I would I would just try to get everyone talking and everyone on the same page, like get get the agents out of the way, get the assistants out of the way. You know, these are high powered people who are, you know, communicating through their people to us or to the production. It's like, fuck all that. Like, let's we're all human beings. Let's all get down. Let's have a lunch. Let's have a conversation about this. Let's work out a solution together, you know, and that's the way I would approach it, which is probably naive and would no, it's, don't know if they would agree to. But that's it's what not I naive. Want. It's just so funny because as you're describing it, my brain jumps to. Yeah, the actor who likes to bring life to the project, who likes to improvise, who who likes the freshness, they're going to throw a bunch of wrenches. In. It's not just going to be one. It's going to be, what if we do this? What if we do this? What if we do this? And I already am anticipating that the Margot Robbie of it all, whoever, like, again, I don't know if Margot Robbie likes to <laughs> rehearse, but the person who likes to rehearse so much 
that they that that is going to create conflict immediately, even if we talk it out up front, right? Because it's about control. Like when I used to act, it was about rehearsing, 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 rehearsing. So you know, so you can do it without thinking. So that idea of control is already figured out, right? You could let go in other aspects because you've controlled all of the variables that you can. And like, if someone else starts throwing elements into it that are unexpected, I I think that's going to rile up a lot of tension. So I don't think it's naive at all. I just think my, uh, my pessimistic brain went to the worst possible scenario of yours. And instead of thinking maybe it would work out, maybe it would work out. Maybe. Yeah, I think like, you know, because you could like you or I or whoever could to, to a rehearse with Margaret Robbie, you know, forever. <laughs> Right. And like get it to the point where she knows it inside and out. We're like completely aligned on character and intention and everything in the scene. Just us without the other actor. Like they don't need to be a part of that necessarily because it's we're just working on her character and then their character could come in and like, you know, react to to the work that we've done. So it's about trust. Right. If you're like not working with that person. And you're then it's very insular, right? Like we're not actors. We're not giving them exactly what they need in the scene. So they're just kind of going through the motions when they rehearse with us. Well, as long as we both trust Robert De Niro or whoever it is, yeah, whoever you it know, is. Yeah. like we like believe in their ability as an actor and we like have respect for them. This should work. Like, yeah. and, and, and if they're like, oh, no, I have to re- rehearse with Robert De Niro. It's like, well, Robert De Niro doesn't rehearse with anybody. It's too bad. It's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, it's not yeah. going to happen. But like, here's what I can offer to you in order to recreate the, the system that you like, you know, the approach that you like that will still work with this person who refuses to, to rehearse. Like, we can make it happen. It's unfortunate that we cater to the person who says no. That's what I think is kind of a bummer, right? It's well, like... What, well, what's, what's the other way to do it? Like, just to make them do what they don't want to do? Like, that's not going to happen. Right. But in effect, we are making someone else do something that they don't want to do. By well, not really. They they're still get to rehearse. They still they get, get to, to do the thing. That, they still get to do the thing they want. They just don't get to do it with this person. And, yeah. well, I'm sorry, but, like, we can't, you can't force someone to do something they don't want to do. And like, I don't think you necessarily should like you want to respect everybody. Right. And so I think this the solution I'm offering, I feel like, is the most respectful to all to like talk it through and work it out together. You know, I think it is the best It is the best answer. And I think (laughs) I I am letting some politics filter my answer a little bit without even knowing the scenario. Like, am I Liz Manishel of 2023 working with these two massive directors, (laughs) right? Or am I just, you know, unnamed director with a baseball cap working with these two directors? And it's like, do you have the ability to say, let's all go to lunch together? Like Liz Manishel 2023 does not. But this other director, maybe they do because they they <laughs> nabbed these two massive stars, right? So it's yeah. kind of well, you can suggest all you want, right? Like you can make options. You can like you can always say ideas. let's go to lunch, but most likely, and, and, yeah. And maybe it's it is or it's not going to happen. I think what your answer is probably the more realistic. Like this is what actually is going to happen. The person with more power is going to win, yeah. And the person who has less power is going to have to do what that person wants. So if if Margot Robbie wants to rehearse and, you know, you have Timothy you know, whatever, Chalamet or John Barenthal, right? Who has less oh, power. Barenthal. It's like Barenthal has to do what Margot Robbie wants to do too bad because that's the way of the world, you know? But yeah, well, we had I, this. I had something similar happen. Not not this, but like I won't say who, but I wanted to change a character. 
I, me and another actor wanted to change their character name on a film. And we went, I wrote a group email and say, and by the way, this character is no longer named this name. It's another name, you know. And then the largest name in the cast wrote back to me, no, I've been saying their name for weeks in my apartment. There's no way you could change their name. And I was like, okay, (laughs) the name will be changed. Not changing the name. (laughs) We will go back to the original name. I, again, theme of the episode, I folded like a piece of paper and was like, whatever you want. You have to. It does happen and you do have to. You do have have to. to. Yeah, it's just the way of the world. But yeah, this is a fun question. I'm curious what other people would do. Like, do you think that there's another solution between the two that Liz and I came up with? Or do we come up with the best answers? I don't know. I, I would, I would love to hear. We came up okay. with the best answers. We got a question no. to ask. Yeah. You, uh, yeah, yeah. I got a listener question. I got a listener question to ask you. Okay. I'm going to ask you this question. Okay. This person named the Spooter Flash. Spooter Flash writes on Instagram. Do you have any advice for someone that wants to be an actor in Hollywood? Like how to connect with people in the industry other than doing background, etc. So this is a very quick question. We don't have a lot of context, but in if you have any general advice, Alric, for someone who wants to be an actor in Hollywood, what what would you say? It's it's just so funny because it's like this question, like from someone who just you know doesn't have a background in this, doesn't know how it works, or doesn't you know has no context. So I think it, it's 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 fun to answer this kind of question because there's just so much work to be done, right? There's just so much time, energy, uh, focus, attention to, to be put into this. I think like if you don't have any experience acting whatsoever, uh, you probably need to get an acting coach first to learn how to act or take some kind of acting classes. Improv is always good. I think, um, as, as a first intro, just to see if you even like it, you know, if, yeah. if you're even into this kind of thing. So do some homework, do some work, like actually see if you want to be an actor by taking classes and learning what the trade is. And then I would say, uh, try to get in a, a, a role in a movie that for no money. So like, don't expect to get paid on your first one. Try to, to, to act in whatever you can. And I think acting classes are a great place for this. Because people are undoubtedly going to have projects, you know, that they're working on within this acting class. So then you become friends with people and then like maybe you get a role in one of these, these, these people's movies that they're working on or their projects that they're creating. And then I would say ha- haunt any local school, you know, that has some sort of film program of some kind, because all film students need actors desperately and they do not know where to find these actors at all. So look out for those because you're going to, there's going to be castings. There's going to be places where people are going to be looking for actors and they're not going to have any money and they're not going to be able to get anyone who has tons of experience. So you're perfect for them, you know, a newbie. So like, you know, try to find those and, and, and audition for those roles. So I would say classes slash film schools do that put in the work doing that and then see where that takes you and if you like it and you're good at it then there's more steps to follow which you can find you know either on our podcast or there's that woman audrey what is it audrey talks acting or audrey teaches acting or audrey is an actor or something i met her at this at the uh the just shoot it live show i went to like many years ago she tried to come on our podcast 
we oh. didn't have her on oh. for some reason. Oh, um, is this pre Liz era that I'm thinking, or is this the Liz era? I can't remember. Maybe pre Liz, like, pre Liz time. But she was a really wonderful person. I really liked talking to her. I met her. Um, her episode on Just Shoot It was great. But she basically, this is what she does. Like she, her whole thing is to help people who want to be actors become actors and then do it the right way. So this podcast, Audrey something actors. God, I got to look it up. I'm looking that, it up right I would, now. I would listen to that because... Audrey Helps Actors, a podcast. Audrey Helps Actors. Yes. Uh, created by Audrey Moore. And it's AudreyHelpsActorsPodcast.com is the word. Listen to that podcast. That will help you. And listen to other podcasts about acting because those are the places... That, like my, my, my lead in my movie, Ed, he has a podcast about acting. He talks a lot about like what it takes to become an actor too. So there's, there's lots of resources out there to learn what it actually means to be an actor. And so like to be an actor in Hollywood, quote unquote, start small, work your way up and know it's going to be a long, 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 long process. But yeah, Liz, what do you think? Anything else I missed from that? Two things. One is. Don't rely on student productions for your reel. I would encourage people to self-produce a reel before they start auditioning for student projects. I would say like if I were an actor and I I never went to film school, I'd probably be like, oh, students, they need me, whatever. They need me more than I need them. You know, I might come at it from a different perspective. But being someone who went to film school, just like you all, Rick, like, we are like uh, we judge actors by very harsh professional standards in those audition processes, even though we are not established directors or established don't have a ton of experience in the industry. Like at that early age, we're still being incredibly judgy and critical of actors. So I would say like and, and like I remember just just completely disregarding someone if they don't have a reel you know like mm. like the reel is so important so like highly encourage you to self-produce a reel because i've been in scenarios of productions where like credit copy you know someone gets cut from the short so you can't rely on that and you're relying on like some you know graduate student who has like 18 projects that they're editing and they're not going to highlight you or deliver you exactly the footage that you need like you should self-produce a scene a monologue a sequence that shows off how good you are and that you're not relying on someone else and their low quality filmmaking to provide you so i would say that's really important to consider instead of assuming the system will provide like provide for yourself yeah or or in conjunction with yeah. Like doing that and then also going on auditions wherever you can. Cause I think like auditioning is really important to like an yeah. actor's process and learning how to audition. So yeah, I mean, it's a good point. Like I, I did what I suggested to do when I wanted to be an actor and I went on a lot of auditions and I even won a couple of roles. And I think the ones I did win. Uh, mostly either went nowhere or just went to YouTube and some never even got got finished. So yeah. that definitely did happen to me also, you know, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's, it's all good. Cause like you have to do everything in order to get better, you know, but I like your suggestion of doing your own thing and producing your own reel. I actually shot a reel for somebody who did this, who uh, went online, found, found me, hired me. And we shot four scenes from, of monologues from different movies. That like she used to to to, you know start her reel off when she moved to Los Angeles. I don't think any of those are on her reel now. I'm sure, but it was uh, I think enough to get her started though. No, that's all you need. You want like some out of focus twinkle twinkle lights in the background. You know, Mm -hmm. like you want it look like legitimate, and you want 
a medium close up of a moment where the actor has an arc, right? It's like, mm. and you're not going to always get that plain, like, cough barista number five in someone's graduate thesis. I love that this person did a bunch of monologues. I think that's super smart. Yeah, no, it, it was cool. It was also fun to, to work on those two. So, uh, Spooter Flash, let us know if this is helpful for you. We want to know if you end up doing any of these things. If you end up be trying to become an actor, if this was helpful, please let us know however you can. And all of you can always send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Please check out the ISA, the International Screenwriters Association, which is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers. They have courses. They publish your logline to industry professionals. They have contests. They, I think they just announced their top 25 writers list so head on over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today thanks to roxanne benjamin for coming on the show thanks to camelia adibi from katrina one pr for setting up the interview thanks to our editor jeff brymoot for doing the editing thanks to our producer eric toms for being awesome finally thanks to all of you for listening and talk to y'all next week Their composers have worked with, on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay and Martin Scorsese, and they even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is really great. Use our code MMIH for 20% discount on your one-year uh, subscription today.